Welcome to the podcast, Exit Insights, where we talk about all of the things to help you exit your business on your terms. Today, I've got Dara O'Sullivan from Dawson Co. Dara's got a fantastic little business where he works with people to set up family offices. He works on the strategic side of things. And welcome to the show, Dara. Thanks, Dara. How are you doing? Yeah, very well, thanks. Beautiful day here in sunny Oxfordshire. I can't complain. Lockdown anyway. Dara, hey, look, um, we've had a, a couple of conversations now and your background and your story is is just uh, one of really interesting. You, you, you started out as a barrister um, and, and got some other experience. Why don't you tell us how you got into uh, working with family officers and I won't try and steal your thunder. <laughs> Certainly. Um, I suppose like all the best stories, it was an accident. Um, I started off life uh, as a barrister back in 2009 uh, it was a pretty terrible time to get called to the bar. There wasn't a huge amount of work around. Um, so I ended up working um, in what we would now call uh, a family office for a lady who had uh, significant sums of money, um, didn't necessarily manage them uh, like a business and needed a lot of help sort of getting set up with her businesses, with her personal wealth, with her um, domestic staff, her estate, uh, her properties around the world. And so I got involved with her and it, it, eventually, uh, over the course of a number of years, set up what we would now term uh, a, a private family office for her. So uh, that's where I started. And then over the course of the last 10 to 12 years, uh, I have turned that exercise into a business. So we offer a, a combination of family office uh, structuring and setup, um, legal services and bookkeeping, accounting, operations management, super yacht management, jet management. So uh, a lot of the luxury assets and the trappings that might come with significant wealth need looking after. And so where clients already have a family office, we might plug the gaps in their abilities or in their resources. Where families don't have one, we would act as a, effectively an outsourced family office for them. Okay. And am I hearing correctly when, when it sounds like you're more on the strategic side in setting up the family office when it's required and, and to get one started rather than the ongoing operational management? So, no, we do both. Um, so we get involved with the strategic side of things, um, often well, what we would call a new or young wealth. So that might be somebody that's had an inheritance. It might be somebody who's had an exit. Uh, it might be someone who's had a divorce and who previously didn't used to run the money and now has their own uh, wealth to look after. Um, or it might simply be a lottery winner. I mean, it's somebody that's that's come to wealth and perhaps doesn't have uh, a structure surrounding that wealth or a way of managing it. Alternatively, it might be somebody who's inherited that wealth and inherited a family office, but wants to put their own stamp on it. So there might already be incumbents that do various different tasks around managing the estate and managing uh, the wealth as and the operations around that wealth. And they might decide that they want, you know, the regime has changed and they want to put their own stamp and their own mark on it. So we'd, we'd help them with that. Um, so, yeah, very much um, sort of planning and, and structuring and setting up, but thereafter uh, either running or supporting them where they would have perhaps shortcomings of resource. So not everyone needs a full-time lawyer. Not everyone needs a full-time accountant or a bookkeeper. So we would offer those services on an ongoing basis as required. Hmm. Okay. And uh, you've been doing it for, for more than 10 years now, I think you mentioned. Have the structure and the nature of family offices changed over that time? I think they have. Uh, I think if you, well, first of all, the, the, the concept of a family office and the words family office 
weren't really used 10 years ago, at least not in the UK. Um, it's a very uh, American concept. The Rockefellers pioneered it hundreds of years ago uh, when they were looking after their own family wealth. And in the US in particular, it tends to be a name that we give to, solely to the investment and wealth management side of what we would term a, a private family office. So it tends to be running the money and making sure that they get a return and, and don't stand still because otherwise inflation uh, erodes at the wealth anyway. Uh, here in the UK, uh, we consider a private family office to be a bit more than that. Um, so it is, it's running the money, it's looking after the wealth itself, but we also consider it to be looking after uh, the assets of the family. So that might be um, houses, yachts, jets, it might be businesses. Uh, we look at their staffing, we look at their legal exposure, we look at all sorts of things within what makes them as a family almost like a business. So, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of the understanding of the term now. Historically, uh, a family office might have taken place, you know, inside a, a smart Mayfair townhouse. The client, the client might have lived there. They might have the front room set aside to their personal assistant or secretary, their accountant, their lawyer. This was a de facto family office. They then realised they didn't necessarily want them all living in their house or working in their house. And so what tended to happen, I think, probably around about 10 years ago, there was a move towards having uh, a townhouse or a nice floor on a building in Mayfair uh, set up with your investment managers, your lawyers, your operations people. The cost of that's gone through the roof. Over the last decade now, you're, you're talking about millions of pounds to simply rent a space and put six staff in there. And that means that the investments have to work an awful lot harder simply for the family to stand still. So you have to generate that as a return. Um, and with, you know, deposit and um, interest rates low and with returns, you know, stagnating a bit over the last 10 years, the money's had to work seriously hard just to pay the salaries. So what we've noticed is that people have perhaps dispensed with a full time lawyer or dispensed with a full time uh, investment team or looked at other ways of, of managing the overheads. And so, yes, what we've seen is, a, a, I think, a move towards more of a, a service concept in the family office space. So buying the services that you need at the times that you need them, a bit more like a, a pay-as-you-go mobile phone rather than a contract where, where you have effectively redundant overhead sitting there. Okay, so it sounds similar to, I guess, a lot of businesses and industries have evolved over the last 10 years yeah. where they're all getting part-time professionals to help them or outsourcing a lot of services to um, yeah, the gig economy uh, for, for want of a better term. Is that happening in family offices as well? You know, virtual um, structures and assistance and what have you? I, I think it is. I think the, the difficulty is that families are, you know, necessarily very sort of private and like to keep their affairs, um, you know, tightly confidential. And I think there's been concern over the years that if you start to outsource or start to use service providers, you lose some of that confidentiality. Um, I don't think it's true. Uh, if, you know, if you look at any law firm, you know, they, they handle confidential information and have done for hundreds of years, many of them. So I, I don't think that's necessarily a valid concern, but I think the family office market has been very slow to bring people into the fold. Um, but we are seeing it now, uh, for sure. Um, over the last 10 years, it's something that, you know, there are, we're not the only people doing what we do. You know, there, this is a space which is growing, I think, quite quickly, um, which is trusted advisors, and it's, and it's trusted advisors as a service. Nice. Okay, so given that we're thinking of business owners and, and we work in the space of helping business owners prepare for exit and get them and their, their businesses exit ready, how do they know when they're thinking along these lines, how do they know if they're going to need a family office structure set up for them once they exit their business? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I don't think that really um, any of them uh, necessarily will. I think that... <laughs> 
a family office tends to grow a lot more organically than than planned. It's not a question simply of I'm going to have this much money, therefore I require a family office, because it depends to a huge extent what you're going to do with the money. If your if your plan is now that you're selling up to go and sit on the beach and just live off the interest, you don't need a family office at all. You need some really great investment managers. They're going to get the best return on that money. You need to plan to make sure it's not going to run out. But thereafter, you don't need a team. Conversely, if your plan is to become a, a rock star investor and to be you know, living above the fold and investing in loads of different businesses, you need a team to help with your due diligence, your accounting, your, uh, your managing your public profile and your social media feeds. There's all sorts of things you'll need um, if you're going to go public and be you know, in, in the public eye. So it depends, I think, to a greater extent on your plans post exit than necessarily how much money you're going to make. Um, but it's an important thought to start having, you know, relatively early. Um, one of the um, advantages of, of considering this early is that you can put together the, the right team to help you do it. So uh, generally speaking, uh, you know, if you bank at one of the large London private banks, if you're starting to, to consider an exit, you'll probably mention it to your account manager. You'll get a phone call from their entrepreneurs team. They'll start talking to you about, you know, ways in which they can help you with your lifestyle afterwards. But you've got to remember they're selling you a product. You know, they want they want your money. They want to invest your money. They want to give you a return on your money. That's that's their job. So I think the most important thing is not necessarily to worry about setting up a family office or a particular type of structure, but do make sure that you find yourself uh, an interdisciplinary team that can help you and act in your best interest. So I think just avoid the sales pitch for the products. So there will be wealth managers who start to speak to you. They circle very quickly um, when they hear that there's an exit, you know, a first. And they will all be telling you that they can give you exactly what you need. And I think it's just a question of making sure that you've got someone sitting on your side of the table that can explain to you what's going on. Because these people talk in, uh, you know, talk in tongues, as it were. They, uh, they don't necessarily set things out totally clearly because ultimately, you know, they're looking for you to buy their products. So looking at things like um, wealth management products, you know, do they charge their fees when the money goes into whatever they're doing? Or do they charge it based on the success of their investments? So they take a, a percentage of the uplift. Do they charge uh, monthly fees? Do they charge um, you know, early release fees? There's all sorts of different questions to be considered in your just in your investment portfolio itself. Um, multiply that out with all the other things you want to do after your exit, then suddenly you need people that can understand in different ways um, some of the things that you might need to consider. Yeah, so there's a whole lot of new considerations when uh, you know, they've exited their business. You know, um, when should they start planning for this? Because you know, it, um, tax is often a consideration when exiting their business. You know, we're not fans of the, the tax tail wagging the dog, the exit dog, if you like. Uh, but tax obviously needs to be a consideration. And, and tax advisors say, tell me all the time, I wish my client had told me before they'd agreed the deal. Um, so yeah. <laughs> what about, is that, yeah, it sounds like the same for you. You need to know how much, you know, time do you need to get things going? As much as possible, please. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> generally more than we get. No, it's, it's really important to consider tax. And, and like you, we, we wouldn't want the tax tail to wag the dog. You know, we know of clients that have, have moved to Monaco uh, immediately before their exit so that they were domiciled overseas when it happened. And, you know, they've left behind their families. They left behind their grandchildren. They've dragged their spouse with them. They're living now in a, a much smaller place than they used to live in the uk they're not paying tax 
but there are so many other things that that they're not able to do. Um, and so what we too would, you know, encourage people not to let tax be the overriding factor. That said, there are clever ways of doing things. There are ways of structuring it that aren't illegal. There are ways of looking at things that don't involve, you know, disappearing money offshore, but simply taking all of the advantages that you're entitled to. And so, yeah, the more you can plan, um, the better you can do that. And that does go often to the shape and structure of the deal. And so, yes, uh, if, you, if you can get your accountants and tax planners involved before you sign the deal, that's often you know, hugely beneficial. Uh, so, yeah, we, we'd agree with that. The, the sooner the better. And it's, it's the same goes for, for your life after exit. So if you're planning on um, you know, setting up another business or taking some time out or going and traveling the world or building your forever home, you know, these sorts of things. The sooner you plan them or the longer you have in the planning doesn't necessarily mean they're going to cost any more. In fact, what we tend to find is if they're planned properly, they can end up costing an awful lot less because you have the ability to design them properly from the beginning rather than having to pay um, for expensive workarounds later on. For sure. Hey, uh, one of the things that we notice uh, when we're working on exit planning with business owners is that it's critical for the business owner to, to know and be energised what they're going to do, you know, once they exit the business. Um, because if they don't have a plan or they don't have some sort of vision of what they're going to do next, that becomes a blocker for the business because they get stuck. You know, it's great to sit on the beach and have this vision that, uh, that a lot do about sitting on the beach. But yeah, after a month or six weeks of that, they're going to get pretty bored of uh, sipping pina coladas by the pool and what have you. Um, what are some of the things uh, you, you must have seen a, a whole raft of examples of good, bad, indifferent, I guess, of, of what some business owners do once they do exit their business? Any stories you can share? Yeah, I think you know, there's, there's, there's some really great things out there um, that people have done. Um, you know, people um, talk about having a more meaningful life. So, you know, often you can you can run a business, you can get very involved in it. It's your baby. Um, you, you, you sell it on or hand it on and you kind of wonder what you're going to do next. And we see people get involved in all sorts of really great things. So, you know, one example is philanthropy. So people who decide they they want to give something back. Now, philanthropy is a term that gets misused a lot. Um, you know, people think that giving money to charity is philanthropy, but there's there's an awful lot more to it than that. And and actually getting the best return and making the most impact for the amount of money you invest or, or donate is really, really important. So, you know, a fantastic example of someone I think who's, who's done a great job of that is um someone like john cordwell so he was the phones for you tycoon he made his money in mobile phones he's come out now and he's dedicated the balance of his life to uh, cordwell children so it's a it's a, a proper philanthropic body that gives and supports children and he's got an amazing way of looking at that he's got his entrepreneurial hat on he said i'm going to use the multiplier effect so rather than spending 10 million pounds and giving that to charity i'm going to organize the best night out of the year i'm going to spend 10 million pounds on that I'm going to attract everybody wealthy, the movers and shakers, the people that want to be there to come to that event and get them to put their hands in their pocket. And so as a consequence, they raise hundreds of millions a year uh, based on his 10. So that, that's a really cool way of doing philanthropy. Look yeah. at Bill Gates. He's famous for philanthropy now rather than effectively inventing the computer. So there are people out there that are doing amazing things um, for giving back. Um, there are people out there that are doing some really fun things um, that look a bit like sitting on the beach, but aren't. So, I mean, we great examples of that are, you know, Richard Branson and, you know, when he first had his early exits, he started hot air ballooning around the world. 
he's taken that forward a bit now. He famously owns a, an island in the Caribbean, but that's actually now uh, a part of a much larger collection of trophy assets, we'll call them. So he's got a beautiful ski chalet in Verbier. He's got a, a game reserve in Africa. And he runs that as a, as a hospitality business. That's Virgin Limited Edition. What a cool thing to do. He's, he's defraying some of his costs for his holiday homes. Uh, and at the same time, he's employing loads of people. I think there's over 100 people employed on Necker Island. So, you know, he's obviously an entrepreneur at heart, but he's actually managed to turn his, his passion and sitting on the beach into a business of itself. Uh, Oleg Tinkoff's another one. Um, he's got his Ladacha collection. He's got a, an exploration yacht, several ski chalets, uh, a fishing dacha in Russia. You know, these are people that have had success in business that have managed to turn their, their passions for travel into, you know, businesses again, but, uh, but more lifestyle type businesses. Yeah. Um, other thing people do then are become investors. Um, so they, they might be, you know, people who've built businesses and think, well, actually, you know, I, I like the look of Dragon's Den. Uh, you know, that, that looks like good fun. I, I feel like I've got a lot more to give. And, and that's probably a, a, a foot in each camp because being a really great investor is about training the people you're investing. It's about helping them. It's about introducing them to people, growing their network, helping them to scale is how you make your money back in a direct investment. So it's kind of a, a bridge between philanthropy and ongoing um, sort of entrepreneurial, entrepreneurship. Um, so that can be really interesting too. But again, needs proper planning to be done uh, properly. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And and we hear of a lot of family officers, you know, they've got money, they want to invest in businesses, you know, they've done well, and they want to reinvest that energy and passion to help others go as well. And, you know, and sometimes you hear good stories and bad stories about those investments. But I guess that's the VC world uh, in general, isn't it? Even though it's a, the family office style is a bit different. Have you got any experience around that? Yeah, for sure. I, I think the, one of the really interesting things is that um, people, I think, um, can be buoyed by a successful business exit. And I think there is a, a little bit of uh, what we might call Icarus syndrome that comes out of it. The idea being that if you can succeed in one sector, you must be able to succeed in another. And, you know, we, we see this again, time and again, if you watch Dragon's Den, a lot of them will say, you know, I'm really interested in this, but it's just not my sector. It's not the bit that I know. And sectors have, you know, really interesting nuances. And so we always try and encourage our clients if they're going to get involved in investment is to try and st stick to what you know. And, you know, if you've got a, a business that you've just sold, there's there's usually alignment in the sort of startup and the, the VC type world that you can use your existing contacts or use your existing network or use your previous supply chain, obviously avoiding any non-competes you might have seen signed as part of your exit. But there, you know, there are opportunities there to, to go again in the same sector. And that is where we see the best successes is people that stick to, you know, it doesn't have to be exactly the same, but if you're, you know, if you're making tables, you can move on to making chairs, but don't start making cars uh, because it's just a totally different world. Yeah, well, we don't want to see him. What was it? Tesla. And uh, yeah, he's, he's gone a bit, a bit, a bit of everything, hasn't he? Space rockets and... Yeah, and, and, and he's, he, he's the one that clients love to trot out, which is, you know, Elon Musk can do it. It's yeah. like, yes, but <laughs> Elon Musk has surrounded himself, A, with a whole load of money, other people's principally, uh, and B, with a whole load of people. So it's not Elon Musk doing all of these things. It's people that know what they're doing doing all of these things, you know, in his name, as it were. And, you know, Branson and Dyson, they all say exactly the same thing. You know, you want this to be a success, surround yourself with bright people that know what they're doing. So I think it's just trying to kind of quell the Icarus syndrome and, and say, you know, you've been incredibly successful. Let's not, let's not waste that now um, playing in, in ponds we don't understand. Okay. So we've got a client, um, <clears throat> They've exited their business. They've been engaged with you um, throughout the process. 
they've set up the, you know, used you to design the strategy. What's a, a general um, time or, or duration you tend to work with someone, Dara? So, I mean, from, from as early as possible in the journey um, to um, when we're no longer required. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a very movable feast. So with people that, you know, would be seeing us as purely transactional and part of that exit, you know, we could be looking at six months to two years, uh, depending on how early in the process we get involved. And that might be helping them to, to plan their exit. It might be helping them with the due diligence side, you know, the providing of information from their side. It might be looking at ways in which they're going to look, deal with the marketing uh, of their exit if they're going to. Um, and then looking at uh, effectively setting up the structure and recruiting whoever they need to have alongside them, uh, ideally immediately before the exit. So that there's this nice, smooth transition into their new existence. And thereafter being available, um, you know, at the end of the phone or the end of the email or, or in their family office to help them with whatever they might need in terms of development. So, yeah, it kind of depends uh, quite a lot. But we, I suppose it, it would never be shorter than six months, um, even if it was just for a purely transactional thing, because that mm -hmm. tends to be, you know, the fastest that these things can get turned around. Brilliant. And how far do you work? Are you UK based? Are you, you do you extend further than that? Yeah, so we... We're based in the UK, we're based in London, and we look after um, various uh, assets in Europe. So we've got some, some ski chalets in the Alps and some villas down in the south of France and a couple of yachts in Europe that we look after for families that are based further afield. So either in the States or over in the Middle East or Russia. Um, but generally speaking, the, the UK is our area of expertise. So that is where we are most useful to clients. So for overseas clients, we, we act as their, their UK family office. So either a, you know, a virtual branch of their, their main family office, wherever they're, they're principally based, um, or we act as their sort of London centre of operations. So, yeah, uh, very much UK centric, but we do look after things slightly further afield if we're closer than they are. Excellent. All righty, Dara. So I'm thinking now there, there must be a number of owners out there now thinking, hey, look, I hadn't considered a family office before. Um, I, you know, it looks like when I do exit my business, there's going to be a significant windfall there. Um, I've got to work with Dara. How do they start? How do they get in touch with you? Uh, best way to do is uh, hit up our website at dosmk.com. You get a nice idea there of, of what we do. Um, by all means, look me up on LinkedIn. Uh, my name is very distinctive. <laughs> You'll find me very quickly. Um, but uh, generally speaking, yeah, uh, or, or through yourself, of course. Through us, yeah, we can put them in contact. All righty. Well, that, hey, the really fascinating area you're working in, um, very niche. And, and you know, like all businesses, when they're niche and focused, they do a much better job. And it's, you know, it's just a, a, an easier proposition to work with. You must have a top tip. What's the one message you want to make sure anyone listening today walks home or, or takes away from this conversation and says, ah, Dara told me that, you know, here's, the, here's all of the collective wisdom that Dara can share with me distilled down into a, a soundbite. Okay, the soundbite is don't leave it to chance. So we see so many businesses or business owners who have their exits and come out the other side and haven't really thought about what they want to do. And it can be an incredible anti-climax and it can, it can be quite depressing. Uh, you've gone through the years of building and growing a business. You've gone through the intensity of the transaction. You've gone through the jitters, will it, won't it happen right up until the second that it does happen. Uh, you might have decided to go off to the beach or find yourself a, a boat to relax on. And then all of a sudden you can have, you can experience this complete emptiness and not know where to start. And I think for, for me, we, we've seen it happen a couple of times where people have been so focused on the deal that they've not really given enough thought to what happens afterwards. And so my advice would absolutely be 
don't leave it to chance. Think about what you want to do, plan as much as you can, uh, and ideally take your family with you on the journey and yeah. make sure they're part of it because they're the ones that will still be there uh, when the deal and the, the ink is dry on the paper. Brilliant. Dara, thanks for sharing your wisdom, your knowledge with us today. It's been a pleasure having you involved in the Exit Insights podcast. Thank you very much.